Welcome back to another episode of the not yet award-winning podcast, Dish and Dirt. It's South Carolina's only podcast that talks about real estate matters important to real estate agents. I am your somewhat talented host, Gary Pickren, and this week we got a fantastic show for you. Now, last week we had Stephen Cooley, the number five agent in the entire world for Keller Williams, and he spent a good amount of time talking about how you can grow your business, as well as whether adding an assistant or creating a team would be right for you. And Stephen has agreed to come back and do another show, and he'll be back with us next week to continue that fantastic conversation. If you have not had a chance to listen to that podcast, you can check it out on any podcast platform. Now, this week, we're going to have a great show because we're going to spend some time talking about seller disclosure exceptions. Some of you may not know that I served on the committee that wrote the most recent form that we use in South Carolina for seller disclosure. And so what I'm going to do is spend a few minutes talking to you about who is exempt from doing the disclosure, as well as those parties that are mistakenly uh, not exempt. A lot of people think they're exempt and they are not. So we're going to spend a little time doing that. We're also going to talk about what happened while you were showing. And this is a new segment where we talk about what the Real Estate Commission has done either for you or to you while you were out showing properties. I'm also going to talk to you about a big issue with HOAs. And of course, no episode would be complete without Gary's good news only. So let's roll right into our show and start talking about the seller disclosure form. So I have a long history with seller disclosure. Several years ago, the Real Estate Commission issued a new seller disclosure form, and I was concerned that the new form was going to cause a lot of potential lawsuits for real estate agents as well as sellers, so I began speaking out about this form across the state of South Carolina. And the Real Estate Commission got wind of a lot of my concerns and asked me to appear before their commission and tell them exactly what was wrong with the form. After spending about an hour and a half eviscerating their document, Tony Cox, who was the head of the commission at that point, said that they had a problem that he needed me to help fix and he had no money to pay me, so I would have to volunteer to help fix it. So I did, and together with uh, commissioners like Hamlin O'Kelly and Jonathan Stackhouse, who y'all may know Jonathan Stackhouse from my video series that can be found on YouTube by searching Blair Cato. It's a video series on The Bachelor. Yes, Jonathan Stackhouse and I actually... Uh, do a weekly video series during The Bachelor Show and talk about all the absolutely asinine things that go on in that show. Uh, so it's a lot of fun to check out. But we joined a bunch of real estate agents from across the state of South Carolina, and we went deep into the bowels of the LLR building, and we started working on a new seller disclosure form, which was the form we are currently using today. Now, what I have noticed over the years as I continue to get phone calls about seller disclosure um, asking for legal advice or to represent uh, one or the other parties in a lawsuit, is that there's a big misunderstanding about when the seller disclosure form has to be used, as well as who's exempt and who is not. And so today what I'm going to do is talk very quickly about when the seller disclosure form is to be used, and then we're going to talk about the 15 exemptions to the statute, meaning that these are the people that don't have to do the disclosure. And then we'll talk about the most misunderstood um, exceptions that people believe are accepted, but they really aren't. And so we'll talk about those. Starting with seller disclosure form, what it is and when it has to be used. South Carolina law requires that a seller disclosure form be completed by the seller and given to the buyer prior to entering into the contract. Keyword there is prior to entering into the contract. So even if you're for sale by owner, seller, 
you still have to do the seller disclosure and provide it prior to the buyer giving you a contract. Now, the transfers that are included are residential real estate property closings that consist of at least one but not more than four dwelling units. Well, what in the world does that mean? What we're talking about is single-family homes, duplex, triplexes, and quadplexes, but apartment buildings and so forth that are larger than four dwelling units are not included, nor would commercial or agricultural land. It includes the seller exchange of property, also things that are known as installment sales contracts. Those are your uh, deed to own or contract to purchase and leases with options to purchase. There are several exemptions under the statute as to parties that do not have to provide the disclosure. In fact, there are 15 exemptions to the statute. So the first exemption under the statute, and these can be found in South Carolina Code 27-5030, and you can Google that, is when a court order requires a transfer of title. What we're getting at here is when the property has gone through a foreclosure sale, a bankruptcy, a receivership, or eminent domain transfer. Uh, a court has ordered the property. Be Usually, uh, the property has been foreclosed on. The, comp- the mortgage company that had the lien against the property has received the property back, and now they are transferring the property. The seller that purchases the property from the lender who has completed the foreclosure sale, that seller must complete a seller disclosure. But the lender who sells the property received in the foreclosure sale does not have to provide that disclosure. The second exemption is a deed issued in lieu of foreclosure. So when somebody is facing foreclosure and they deed the property back to the lender to avoid the foreclosure process, that lender does not have to do a disclosure to someone buying the property from them. However, if somebody buys the property from the lender that was a deed in lieu of foreclosure and then decides to transfer the property to somebody else, that person would, in fact, have to do the seller disclosure. Number three is an individual serving in a fiduciary duty in the course of administration of the estate, guardianship, conservatorship, or trust. So what a fiduciary is is someone who is ethically and legally bound to act in the interest of another. So for an example, it would be an estate or a trust selling property. For example, personal representative of the estate would be a fiduciary. The trustee of a trust would be a fiduciary. In these situations, there is no requirement for a seller disclosure. So let me delve a little bit further into that. So if the estate of Gary Pickering is selling the property, then there is no seller disclosure because as the personal representative of the estate, I'm transferring the property. I don't have to do a disclosure. The rationale behind that is the personal representative oftentimes has no information about the quality of the house or any repairs that need to be done or have been done. Keep in mind, this is extremely different than if you inherit the property and take title to the property through the estate, and then you sell the property as the individual. In those cases, you absolutely have to do a disclosure. Same thing with the trust. A trustee might or should not know. Now, here is a tip for you. I don't believe that a power of attorney, even though that is a fiduciary duty, has the right to be exempt. So, for example, if my wife and I own the house, or let's say my wife owns the house, and I am acting as her power of attorney, and I live in the house with her. I don't believe that that's the intent of the statute to exempt me from having to do the disclosure because I'm acting as her power of attorney. Or the same thing with the trust. 
if the trust is selling the property and the trustee is, say, a, an attorney or a bank officer, they have no knowledge of the property, and so they should be able to sell it without a disclosure. But if I set my house up in the Gary Pickering Family Trust, and I'm the trustee, and I live in the house, I clearly have knowledge about the what's going on with the property, and I think a disclosure should be done there. The statute's not very clear on that, but I believe that is how that would work. Now, the next example, or exemption rather, is for one co-owner to another co-owner. So if my wife and I own the property and I'm transferring the property solely into her name, I would not have to give her a disclosure. The the fifth one would be a deed to a spouse or family member that is in the lineal line of consanguinity. That means basically uh, if I'm transferring my house to my spouse, my children, uh, my parents, uh, then I don't have to provide that disclosure. Number six, between spouses resulting from a divorce decree or support order. So if two owners of the property are married and they are getting a divorce, the spouses don't have to give disclosures to each other. Number seven is a tax deed. If you're buying property at a tax sale, the deed typically comes from the treasurer. The treasurer does not have to give you a disclosure. If you buy the property from a tax deed and then you transfer title to someone else through a sale, then yes, you would have to provide the disclosure. Number eight is to or from the federal government. This is very important. Oftentimes, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, which are quasi-government agencies, HUD, the VA, those types of agencies have properties and they transfer them. In those transfers, the federal government is never required to provide you a disclosure. But if you are an agent who is representing one of these companies or entities, please understand that if you have knowledge of a material adverse fact that adversely affects the property, you must disclose that even though your client does not have to do the disclosure. The same goes for number nine, which is the state government or any of its agencies. So if state housing or the city of Columbia or the city of Greenville or a county or whatever is transferring property and it is a state agency, county agency or city agency, they do not have to provide you a disclosure either. Tenth exemption is for sale of a house which has never been inhabited. This exemption applies to new construction. This one's also misunderstood. If a builder builds a house, new construction sells it to your client, they do not have to do a disclosure. But if somebody has lived in this house or if the builder has rented the house, then yes, a, a disclosure is required. So if I'm a builder and I cannot sell my house, so I move into it for a year and then decide to sell it, I now have to do a disclosure. Similarly, if I build a house, I can't sell it, and I rent it to somebody for even a week, I now have to do the disclosure. Number 11, the exemption is for property sold at auctions. We don't have a lot of auctions around here, though I do represent an auction company out of Greenville and Spartanburg, and they do uh, occasionally do some auctions around this area, but they don't have to provide disclosures. Number 12 is deed from a residential trust. So if there's a REIT, those are commercial type trusts, or there's some type of trust holding properties, uh, that trust does not have to do it. Number 13, when the parties agree in writing that no disclosure statement will be completed. This is very important. If the buyer and seller get together and agree that no no disclosure is going to be required, then this item allows the parties to agree amongst themselves not to do it. The most common times that you will see this is when the property has been rehabilitated by the seller. The seller has bought the property, they've gone in and gutted it, or they've gone in and done massive uh, rehabilitation. Secondly, is when it's for sale by owner. For sale by owners have to do a disclosure 
unless the parties agree that one won't be provided. So where is that agreement done? That agreement typically is done in the real estate contract. Both the state contract as well as CCRA contract both have provisions in there for the parties to select that a disclosure has been provided or the parties have agreed that one will not be provided. Number 14 is vacation timeshares. Finally, vacation multiple ownerships. Those are called interval ownerships. Those were very big right before the crash of 2007 and 8. This is where people would buy a beach house and then share intervals to other parties so that parties on intervals, they would own one-fourth, and that would set out a calendar as to when they would be able to use that house. So those are the 15 statutory exemptions. So now I think it's very important that we explore who is not exempt from seller disclosure. Now, this is a tremendous problem in our industry that for some reason, real estate agents have come to believe that certain people or entities are exempt that clearly are not. The number one misunderstood or misbelieved exemption is companies, corporations, and partnerships. I have a lot of agents tell me, well, they're a company, they don't have to do a disclosure. That is not true. It doesn't matter how big, how small, how many transactions the company's completed. doesn't matter whether they're based in, Col- in South Carolina or if they're based in North Carolina or Georgia. If a company owns a property that is a one to four residential dwelling, which is single family, duplex, triplex, quadplex, the seller must complete a seller disclosure unless the parties agree otherwise. The most misunderstood, I would say, is landlord. I have many agents and clients saying that they don't have to provide a disclosure because they're a landlord. Well, there is no exemption, as you've seen. We've gone through the 15 exemptions. There's no exemption for landlords. In fact, I would argue the person who knows most about the quality of their house and whether it needs repairs or not is a landlord because a tenant will always complain. Now, if you live in a house with a spouse or a partner, oftentimes they may not tell you that they saw a nail pop, a leak, some issue with the house because it's just not worth listening to the whining and complaining about it. That's what my wife does. She doesn't like to tell me a lot about it because she knows I'm going to whine. But if you're a tenant, you always complain. And so the landlord always knows. So do not be mistaken into believing that a landlord is exempt from seller disclosure. They are 100% not. Number three, owners who have never lived in the house. I get this a lot where an owner says, well, I never lived in the house, so I don't have to do one. That's also not true. Not living in the property does not eliminate your duty to complete the disclosure. In fact, a non-occupying owner can and must complete the seller disclosure. We often hear these sellers complain, how would I know what's wrong with the house? I've never lived in the house. But that's not what the law asks the seller to disclose. The seller is required not to investigate but they're required to disclose what they have knowledge of. And in fact, the form asks that. Do you as seller have knowledge of a problem or a defect? So if you've never lived in the house and you don't know of those problems, then the answer is yes or no, that you don't know the answer to the problem. The next area where people are mistaken as to an exemption is property being sold as is. And this means property that's being sold with all its defects and issues with the seller making no repairs. As is, however, does not void the seller's responsibility to disclose known defects, problems, and issues with the property. Seller disclosure clearly does not exempt an as-is property. Now, the buyer and the seller could be uh, in agreement not to do a seller disclosure, but in and of itself, it is not an exemption. The fifth exemption I hear a lot in closings, nonprofits such as churches and charities. A lot of agents think that if you're a nonprofit or that it's a church, that they don't have to do a disclosure. That is also incorrect. They have to do disclosures. 
The sixth one we've already talked about multiple times for sale by owners. Anytime a property is being for sale by owner, it absolutely has to have a seller disclosure unless both parties agree otherwise. And then lastly, flippers and wholesalers. This is where the seller takes title and either through a uh, an agreement or a contract, and they immediately try to flip the house to somebody else. Sometimes they take title and flip it. Sometimes they try not to take title and just assign it. If they actually take title, then they have to do a seller disclosure. So as you can see, there are multiple situations where agents and sellers often are confused and believe that they are exempt. There's only the 15 exemptions, and you need to make sure that your client understands those. Your client claiming an exemption that doesn't exist puts not only your seller at risk for failure to disclose, but it also puts you as the real estate agent at risk as well. And now we're to our new segment called What Happened While You Were Showing. And what this segment does is we're going to give you information about what the Real Estate Commission is either doing for you or perhaps even to you while you are out showing property. And in this week's installment, we're going to talk about a meeting at the Real Estate Commission concerning nicknames. Now, with nicknames, it's been a problem ever since the revision of the law in 2017. And I've represented numerous agents that have had grievances filed against them because they were not using their full legal name as shown on their real estate license when they were doing marketing and advertising. And under our current law, that is what is required, you to use your full legal name. Well, this causes a problem for people that have names like Christopher or William or Andrew or Margaret Because a lot of those people go by the shorter version of those names, Chris, Andy, Bill, Robert goes by Bob, Margaret may go by Peggy, and names like that. And so even though those are the names that we know you by, according to the law, you have to market yourself using your full legal name, which really makes no sense because if you go, let's say your name is uh, Jonathan Smith, but you go by Buddy Smith, no one's going to know you as Jonathan. They're going to know you as Buddy. And so it creates quite a problem. But the Real Estate Commission says the reason for this is that they can't find you if somebody wants to file a grievance against somebody named Buddy because if they look up a Buddy Smith, they're really trying to find a Robert Smith and they can't find you because Buddy's not in their system. So I've long advocated for let's just put our license number on our marketing and advertising and business cards and it takes care of that. That is what mortgage lenders are required to do by federal law. But it looks like they've tried to come up with another solution. And so Gigi Lewis, who is the counsel for the uh, Real Estate Commission Board, stated in the minutes, and I pulled the minutes off their website, that the commission had previously been requested or had rather had asked staff to present a draft of guidelines for nicknames. And Ms. Lewis reported that investigations on this matter had been halted pending this guideline. And so this is what they've come up with. Um, For first names only, you could submit to the commission a first name nickname. And what this would be, they would not allow any changes or amendments to the submission of the first name once it's meant. But what they're looking at is you could have a derivative of a legal first name that is logically associated with that first name. For example, if your name is Elizabeth, you could submit Beth. If your name is Andrew, you could submit Drew or Andy. Now, non-derivative of legal first name could include the use of your middle name or your initials or use of an American name for an ethnic first name, or for use of a known name first name, such as Bubba, Trey, Sandy, Junior, Buddy, obviously would be part of that as well. They're not going to allow nicknames such as John the Real Estate Man, because they say that's unacceptable, and I get that. That's not the purpose of the nicknames. And they are going to say that all submissions of these nicknames have to be uh, commission approved. 
Only legal last names can be used. You cannot use a nickname for your legal last name. So this is what's been presented. However, it looks like the commission motioned to table the item and they voted unanimously in favor of tabling it. So I'm not really sure uh, when this will come out. Uh, Rod Atkinson, who's one of my good friends over there, who's chief of staff, recognized that Mr. Smallwood of the Association, South Carolina Association of Realtors, provided remarks on this issue and stated that this is quite a big issue for the Realtors Association and asked that this be brought up before the next meeting or as soon as possible. So uh, thank you, Mr. Smallwood, for uh, advocating for that because, yes, it does need to be resolved. So that is what your commission is doing for you or to you while you are out showing houses. So now let's talk about homeowners associations. So in the last few weeks, we have seen a proliferation of fees being charged by the HOAs. We're seeing more estoppel fees, more transfer fees, capital contribution fees, and things of that nature. So let's first of all look at what the contracts say uh, as to who pays those fees, and then let's talk about a problem that has resulted thereof. So first of all, in the state contract, association contract, let's see what it says. Under paragraph 6, it says, All costs to obtain information from or pertaining to owner's association and the costs similar to transfer fees, e.g., Certificate of assessments, capital contributions, working capital, estoppel fees, and otherwise named but similar fees are the blank seller's or blank buyer's transaction costs. If no box is checked, these costs will be added to the seller transaction cost. Then looking at the CCRA contract that's used in the Midlands, it says under paragraph 5, all costs to obtain information from or pertaining to any association, owner association, is a buyer transaction cost. But what about the situations where the estoppel letter says that the buyer has a $300 estoppel fee and the seller has a $300 estoppel fee. And we started seeing that recently here in Columbia, where instead of just charging one estoppel fee for the information, they're now charging two. I'm not really sure why they do that. It's the exact same information. So I'm not sure why they get to double dip. But there's an association in town that is doing that where it's a $300 buyer estoppel fee and a $300 seller estoppel fee. The problem with that is, The HOA doesn't control in these situations. The contract does. So when the HOA puts in the contract that the fee is $300 to the buyer and $300 to the seller, we actually have to look at the contract and see what the contract says. So under the situation of using the state contract, both of those fees could be the buyers or the sellers, depending on how the box is checked. Under the CCRA contract, that fee, even though it says seller estoppel fee, it's going to be put on the buyer because the contract says all information, uh, cost of obtaining information uh, pertaining to homeowners associations is going to be a buyer cost. So that's a problem that the HOAs are creating. The only way really to fix that is to add a provision in the contract that states unless the estoppel letter designates otherwise. But that's going to be a negotiated term between the two parties. So that is a problem that a lot of HOAs are calling causing, and you guys need to be aware of it. And now we're going to roll right into Gary's good news only. And there's only a few topics we have to hit on this week because the good news is just astounding. So the first piece of great news happened actually last week that the gross national domestic product rose by an annualized rate of 33.1%. And to put that into context, since we've been measuring these things since the 1940s, it's more than double the best month from 1950 or best quarter since 1950 when we started really seeing the growth post-World War II. And so the amount of growth is just astounding. You can add 
basically four or five years together and it doesn't come up with 33.1%. And it's actually higher than they even anticipated, which was at 32%. So what we're seeing is a V-shaped recovery caused by this pandemic. And it looks like things are looking certainly up in the economy. As for the coronavirus, the CDC issued some important information to help people understand where this really is coming from. The United States today is, the, is amongst the lowest case fatality rates of any major country. And according to their best estimates at the CDC, 99.997% of individuals aged 19 and younger who contract coronavirus make an absolute full recovery. 99.98% of those who are 20 to 49 make a full recovery, and 99.5% age 50 to 69 also fully recover. Now, of those under the age of 70 that have become infected, like I said, 99% recover from the disease. Deaths are also down 80% and are at their lowest level since March. Hospitalizations are also due to coronavirus are near their lowest level nationally, Less than 6% of beds currently occupied are with patients who have COVID. Not necessarily there for COVID, but patients who have it. And finally, COVID-like illnesses make up less than 3% of all emergency room visits. So if you look at the deaths, the 200 plus thousand deaths we have, they all, the vast majority were in the first few months. It is clear that what is happening now is that the numbers of deaths have dropped 80% because our frontline workers know what they're doing. They know how to treat this. They know how when to do certain things. So it looks like things are getting so much better. Gary's new, good news only is certainly good news this time around. So that's our show for the week. I hope you guys enjoyed it and got something useful out of it. We will be back next week once again with Stephen Cooley, who's going to again teach you how to grow your business. So don't miss that episode. Also, don't forget to go back and listen to all of our episodes. They can be found on any of the podcast platform by simply searching Gary Pickering Podcast. You can follow me on Instagram at Pickering Gary, P-I-C-K-R-E-N-G-A-R-Y. And if you like this episode, we'd ask that you please like us, share us, and subscribe. But mainly, I need you to please get the word out to other agents throughout South Carolina, regardless where they are showing and selling properties. Until next week, we hope you have a wonderful week, and we'll see you back next Thursday morning.